Well, hello, deal makers, and welcome to the Apartment Building Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blanc. I am super excited that you're here. I'm also super excited to announce that we're about two weeks away from our biggest multifamily event on the planet, this year virtual, Dealmaker Live, taking place July 15 to 18 in your home, on your computer. Yes, it's virtual. And we have an amazing, exciting lineup of people. We have a master syndicator, Ellie Permlin, author Monique Helm, Robert Helms, or the real estate guys, Brandon Turner, Bigger Pockets, Joe Fairless, all speaking at Dealmaker Live. We also have uh, VIP tickets available, which is super cool because it enables special small group network and not just with each other, but also with some of the keynotes I just mentioned. That's right. You can spend 20, 30 minutes with Robert Helms, Joe Fairless, Brandon Turner, if you get a VIP ticket. So really excited about trying something new uh, with this virtual event. Excited. If you are interested at all in any kind of multifamily investing, this is the event of the year. Go to dealmakerliveevent.com and grab your tickets and uh, we'll hope to see you there as well. Okay, so today in today's episode, I have an amazing data analyst. His name is Damien Bergamashi, and I have never seen anyone quite crunch the numbers like like he has. He basically has an investment fund, has a Wall Street finance background, and through his partner found his way into commercial real estate. They're currently focusing on mobile homes, they have some self-storage, and they're looking at multifamily. But the class itself is affordable residential housing. And the data really led him there. And it's interesting because he explains him following the data breadcrumbs until he landed where he is today. And fortunately, his conclusion is the same with ours, but I've never had anyone go as deep as he has to explain exactly why multifamily or affordable housing specifically is so unbelievably attractive. We also talk about why is it that our collections, despite what's going on in the world right now, are still as consistent as they were beginning of the year, late last year. And he has some explanations for that. But the question is, will it last? That's a great question. And we're going to talk about his outlook, again, using a lot of data that I haven't even looked at before. So it was really fascinating. Let's get into the show with Damien. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Block. All right, this show is sponsored by our Investor Incubator Mentoring Program, a unique program anywhere in the world because we guarantee the results. So if you want to do your first multifamily apartment deal in the next 12 months, this may be the program for you if you value a mentorship and you are able and willing to invest in yourself. And we actually guarantee results. If you don't do your first deal in the first 12 months with us, we'll continue supporting you until you do. But you're working one-on-one with a full-time syndicator as part of this program. So we're going to solve several problems for you. One is you need steady deal flow. And that's especially important in this particular time. You need access to funds. We're going to teach you how to actually raise capital and how to build a platform uh, to scale that up as well. And we're going to help put a team in place, plus connect you with an unbelievable network of other capital raisers, deal finders that we have built here up over the years. So if you think that might be for you, then schedule a free strategy session with us. Go to the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor and explore if mentoring is right for you. All right, let's get right in the show with Damien. Damon, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love the energy. Uh, yes, sir. You know, you got to go overboard on the video because people can't, you know, and of course, when you're listening to it. So, and uh, it's a little more fun that way also. But let's talk about you real quick. Talk about your your company and what you guys are doing right now. Yep. So uh, my company's uh, Damaris Capital. We actually originally, we're, we're an accidental uh, money management firm because we originally started off, uh, my partner and I, 
a little over a decade ago, it was uh, we wanted to do a joint venture together. To I was going, I was a research analyst, you know, in quantitative finance, and uh, he had a software company, and uh, we both wanted to see, hey, could we combine our skills together so that we could come up with uh, models to get to financial independence faster? And um, over the periods of time, we built enough infrastructure that people became interested in what we were doing. Friends and family started investing, and then we said one day, wow. I, it doesn't take any more effort to manage a million dollars as it would a hundred million dollars the way we were doing it. And we were a money management firm. And in the uh, more recently, um, and several years ago, about three, three, four years ago now, we started investing in uh, real estate holdings. We're, we're focused in the mobile home park niche and some self-storage, but you know we're very keen on residential for numerous reasons. And uh, we have two private equity funds uh, for accredited investors. Uh, we own uh, interest in about uh, it's almost 40 mobile home parks nationwide and self-storage facilities uh, across 18 states um, with you know several thousand rentable units. So it's been fun. Yeah, it's, yeah you guys have built up a, a pretty interesting port- portfolio. Now, you're, you're a numbers guy, which, of course, is what attracted me. And I said, hmm, this guy's got some really interesting numbers. And I'm a numbers guy, but you take it to a, a different level. I'm going to get into a second. But how did you get started with all this stuff? Because you're a relatively young guy. Yeah, it's crazy. The age sneaks up on you. I'm 35 now. And um, I actually started investing when I was probably about 19, 18 or 19 years old. And my first joint venture was actually with my roommate in college, where we uh, we pulled together our funds and uh, we were trading together because at that time, you know, you actually needed two people to like put orders in and out pretty quickly. And um, I, I was doing it for about ooh, four weeks. And then I said, you know what? I bet you we could write a program that would automate all this stuff. And my first computer program for automated trading was actually built while I was in college using Excel macros on a platform called TradeStation. And then it just, you know, that was like before, you know, automated trading or algo trading was a thing. And uh, just for, for years and years, it was, it was a hobby and, you know, until it became basically what we do full time now. So Damien invented automated trading. You uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, no. So, <laughs> so you guys, that kind of that's, thing. that's 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 awesome. So he, so you and your roommate started trading, and you started automating this this stuff. How did you then get involved in the in the company that, that you're in now? Yeah. So basically, several years went by, and eventually, I met my my now partner uh, Chris, and he had a software company. And like I said, we we basically realized that if I had this idea that uh, there were several strategies that I had saw, and we were talking about uh, not real estate just yet, but we were looking at multiple asset classes all over the world, and we we were reading white papers constantly. And what we the idea that we had was, if we organized all of that data and kept our own data sets, then we could take information we saw in white papers and then basically convert it to conditional logic rules, make sure, you know on a clean data set and test it to see if it held up in multiple asset classes. A lot of things don't. Many things did. The things that did were extremely robust. And then we basically started looking at all investments through this lens of, because anything that's tradable, at the end of the day, there's a human being on the other side of that. And um, one of the other big ideas I think that I had early, thankfully, in my career was that, you know, when you look at the financial research and and literature on the average investor, we're so bad. We really do. And, And it's amazing because we have a supercomputer for a brain, even the most average among us, yet almost all the decisions we make degrade performance. And that was the the idea that if that's true, then there must also be true universal rules that harvest this bad behavior that investors have. 
And because of that, we started looking through at investments almost as data sets. And you know, we invested, we did very well uh, with our investments. Um, we were, Chris and I and, and my family and his family were extremely, you know, strong savers. I mean, in our, you know, we were almost doing the fire movement, not knowing that we were, were doing it. You know, we saved my family, like our, you know, we were saving between 70 and 80% of our take home living in a 500 square foot apartment in New York <laughs> for a while. And then eventually um, we kind of realized that, you know, we were doing that all in taxable accounts. We essentially realized that in three or four years, we're going to be at a point where we don't necessarily need to put more money into our Roth IRA or traditional IRA. Maybe there's something we could do now, but because the strategy we did were very uh, active to manage risk and get the returns that we were getting, we knew taxes would basically eat a lot of your edge. You know, and if you make a hundred percent return in a year and you know, you give half away to taxes, but the year that you lose 50% return, you don't get an extra 50%. So it basically makes something asymmetric into symmetric which kind of, you know, can wreck your edge. And um, we started looking at other asset classes and then we realized it was going to be real estate. And um, we basically spent several years looking around all over the country, checking out different MSAs, looking at different types of asset classes. We first started off looking near our, near our house, you know, just in New York. And that proved a fallacy very quickly. Like we couldn't get the cap rates to, to basically make a spread on, on borrowed money. And then we remembered a research paper around this topic in, in finance called home country bias. And home country bias is essentially, it's amazing that no matter what country you live in, whether you're Japanese or Greek or even different countries in Africa, you tend to invest all of your money in your own home country stock market. It doesn't matter if you're the United States where you know it's like a first world country or you're a war-torn country that is constantly reminded that uh, it, you know, tomorrow might not be the same as today. It's just a, a truth. And what we realized is we said, you know, there's probably not a home country bias in real estate, but there probably is a hometown bias in real estate. And the hypothesis was that, you know, people love real estate because they can see it, they can touch it, it's real to them. You know, typically stock market people and real estate people don't really get together <laughs> too often. So we're kind of like odd birds like that. And, um, Turns out if you look and go outside of major cities where all that capital is pooled that people want to buy and touch and see what they can, you go out across the country, the cap rates and the opportunities seem to, to really you know, be there. And eventually we stumbled upon the mobile home park asset class. It was kind of between multifamily apartment buildings and, um, and the self-storage was interesting too. We were essentially looking for stuff that had attractive cap rates that had the economies of scale built into the properties so that when we ran our numbers, because we're numbers guys, it would normalize out. And then we wanted to do as diversified a portfolio as possible. So we, we ended up raising money for that. The first fund was friends and family. It was a little over a million dollars. And then we opened up to outside investors in the second fund. And we're in the habit of, of doing one every year so we can continue to scale into this diversified uh, mobile home park index, you know, over time that we're trying That's to interesting. Create how numbers driven you guys are and you came from the stock market and somehow you ended up in real estate. That, that transition is pretty rare. And like you said, uh, my experience has been that the stock guys don't really hang out with the real estate guys. They actually use totally different language. And I find it interesting that your, that your, your pursuit of numbers ended up, you ended up in, in real estate, specifically commercial real estate, specifically in affordable housing. Now you guys are doing mobile home parks, self storage. And that's kind of where you ended up in. Sure. 
we're mostly mostly mobile home parks. If this yeah. I mean, the first one we did was a little bit more skewed to self storage, but I mean we're we're very heavily skewed to we so love you, residential. Your numbers kind of led you to this yes. affordable housing niche, I suppose, uh, of which multifamily is a, is a part. You guys have yeah. not yet invested really in multifamily, but it's it's kind of similar. And my question it, is, it really is similar. It, yeah. it, the question is, why did the numbers? lead you there i mean i don't think you guys started off going oh i think we're going to start end up in, investing in mobile home parks you just kind of follow the the breadcrumb what is it about the numbers that you like about the affordable housing asset classes yeah so first off one of the reasons why i think we can kind of mix with real estate and you know the, the traditional markets is we have no love for any particular asset we really don't we're essentially trying to find low correlation investments that are each independently a good idea and put them together in a portfolio. And when you do that, you have to think about, well, what's the after-tax return? Because you can't eat the pre-tax return, you know, as, as they say. So that's kind of the first thing. And even to this day, when we go to like events where it's stock people, we can't bring it up that we do real estate. It's like, it's that kind of weird. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I think there's actually an opportunity to arbitrage that somehow, but but anyway, the numbers that we really liked is one of the greatest trends out of any data set we've ever seen is that of the devaluation of the dollar. I'm not a gold bug guy. I'm not, you know, a hyperinflation guy. But when you look at a time series of, you know, inflation over time, it is a truly unique. If it was an investable asset class, it's truly unique. It has a very large magnitude. You know, the value of a dollar today versus, you know, 100 years ago, it's incredibly different, right? So it's large. It's persistent over time. It's incredibly consistent. Something like uh, since the Fed came out, even in years where we've, we're worried about deflation, it's very uncommon that we get more than one quarter stitched together where we have deflation. It's, so it's very consistent. When we do have a massive outlier in inflation, the upside is, tends to be two to three times larger than a, an outlier in deflation. That's even before the Federal Reserve became a thing. And on top of that, it's almost government sponsored. The government says we're going to hit, we're targeting a 2% inflation rate. So that's kind of a backdrop and that's monetary inflation. In other words, manipulating the money supply through all the ways that, that the government does. So that's kind of like a starting point. So you have the tax advantages of real estate, which are very similar universal in almost all of them. Then you have inflation. So then the next part was, okay, how do we measure inflation? Because there's a million ways to do it. The most common way that we don't like is you take a basket of goods and you track the price of that basket of goods over time. It has so many problems to it though, because what goods you put in, are the goods gonna stay the same over time? Technology is a massive deflationary force. You know, Think about your iPhone is going up in price by this much, but the power is going up in price this much. The same thing with cars, they didn't have airbags. There's all these things when you adjust for it, goods are not a good use to measure inflation because there's so much going on in them. And then we just kind of said, you know what? We love keeping it simple. Like we're data people, but at the same time, we like keeping it simple. And the thing that we said is, let's just measure people's incomes because people buy goods with their income. That's very consistent over time. Like we didn't start using dinars and then switch the dollars. Like, so we said, let's just measure the, the people's income rates and we, we stratify it by income level. So this works for a class A, luxury, you know, condo, or if we're looking at, uh, let's say, affordable housing. Affordable housing, we, we consider is that 20% mark. So it's a little bit above and a little bit below of, uh, you know, the, the bottom quintile, right? 
And when you track that over time, you get a compounded annual growth rate on the, the, the income. And then we said, okay, what's the best way to invest? Inflation's not an investable asset. How could we indirectly get into it? And that's why we love residential real estate because it's unbelievable. People will spend very consistent levels of their take home on where they live. And one of the things that's interesting about that, why it's so tethered to it. Now, let's get asset class agnostic in residential for a second. If that wasn't true, if incomes kept going up faster than, let's say, um, property values, regardless of the property value, if they weren't tethered together, eventually even the poorest person in the country could own a mansion or nobody would be able to afford a mobile home unit. It has to be tethered at some level. Now, there's some elasticity there, but generally that is about a third of people's you know, take home gets spent on where they live, plus or minus a little bit, depending upon the cities. One other point that's interesting about this data is that you know, sometimes you'll see people post charts about you know, the US Case-Shiller Home Price Index and how like, it's gone parabolic and incomes have been pretty much flat. Well, we've actually found that when you normalize that data for the cities that they're in, those cities have had massive parabolic spikes in income as well. The, the tech hubs of this country that have had, you know, everybody talks about um, the West Coast and California, you know, the Bay Area. The incomes have gone like that too. So it, it has gone up a little bit more than incomes, but not that much because the incomes have gone up a lot. So to kind of bring it all together, we wanted to basically invest in what we think is the greatest trend ever, which is inflation. And we wanted to do it in a tax efficient way, which is real estate. And then we wanted to add one level onto this. And this is a framework that we have that we call inflation harvesting. It's a, it's a white, we actually written a white paper on it. You can kind of request it for us. It's a, it's a little trademarked term that we have for this premise. There's one layer and that's is you've layered some debt into it because when you borrow money, you're essentially long inflation. The bank is short inflation, right? Because if inflation is 4% a year, but you, you're borrowing at 4% to bank, it's a break even trade. Right. So let's just assume right now inflation is 2%. Let's say it's the Fed target over the long haul. Right. And um, interest rates are roughly between three and 4%, let's say roughly. So you're really only paying a net 2% above inflation. Right. So because the Fed's helping you pay down some of your, uh, some of your costs. And essentially what we wanted to do is we wanted to borrow and lever our exposure to inflation in a tax efficient manner, but we needed the prerequisite for this, because you could do this, you could do this with gold, for example. The problem is gold doesn't pay you any rent. So while you borrow the money, it's ticking you down. That's which is why I'm not a gold bug. We will have gold in our diversified asset portfolios when the models say it's a good idea and the other side of our business. But as a long term, and you know, we look at real estate from a value perspective because you can't trade in and out of it the way we do in the other stuff. So we're we're looking for value, and that means we need positive cost of carry. For this trade to make sense, this inflation harvesting trade, this position, you need to hold it for 10 plus years because that's where the data says that starts to become the confidence interval is extremely high. So you, the only way that you can do that is you have a position that we call easy to hold position. It's paying you money constantly because you have positive cash flow. It's not really painful. The weak hands that get shaken out of the market are people who are undercapitalized, holding things that are flirting with positive cash flow and that um, can eat their reserves as well. And residential in a diversified way, I don't care if it's an apartment complex, mobile home parks, 
triplexes, duplexes, whatever it is, there's, you know, there's quite a few other, as, as you know, they tend to, to have this level of protection and positive cash flow component if you, if you buy it the right way. So mobile home parks, we felt, had a little bit of a higher cap rate at the time, though that has shrunk quite a bit because so many private equity funds and even sovereign wealth funds have been buying. Like Singapore's sovereign wealth fund is one of the largest buyers of U.S. mobile home parks. I couldn't believe it when I found it. So... <laughs> That's really interesting, Damien. Uh, we have mentioned the the benefits of investing in multifamily coming from a perspective where we already knew it's a pre-gone conclusion. It's, well, it's the best thing. Let me tell you why, because I already knew the answer beforehand. You guys came at it from completely different. I mean, you could have gone any, anywhere, really. Yeah. And I, I, you explained the benefits of investing in affordable residential housing really, really well in a way that doesn't just hit the highlights, but actually explains some of the mechanisms. And what you're doing is you're really overlaying these benefits together to get a, a super highly leveraged. Uh, and then within that asset class, you guys said at the time, hey, the cap rates, the value within the asset class is the best for us in mobile home parks. That's why we went. It could have been self-storage, could have been multifamily. But the point is the asset class, the breadcrumbs took you to the asset class itself. Yeah. And, and the I, most important yeah. thing actually is, and actually multifamily apartment is on our radar. You know, we're, we actually started looking at certain deals just because mobile home parks have become so desirable from where they were five years ago that they're starting to kind of get on par. Now, there is some differences that are interesting in the mobile home park space versus, you know, an apartment. An apartment building doesn't have the optionality that a mobile home park does. Like you can convert that to something. And that does happen from time to time where you have a, you know, best use of, of land case sort of changes and that can create value. So now you talked about the numbers coming from inflation, the uh, tax benefits, and the correlation there, and the and the leveraging with the debt. So that's that's pretty cool. But you actually uh, actually wrote a really interesting blog post article, yep. which caught my attention, which is like, what does a thirty percent unemployment rate really mean for affordable housing uh, investments? And it was kind of fascinating. I want to talk to you about that because what we've been seeing uh, in our portfolio is that our collections are actually very consistent with what they were before COVID. And that's a little surprising. And we can explain it. Maybe we can theorize and speculate why that might be uh, maybe uh, subsidies or choices being made or whatever the case may be. But something doesn't really add up, right? When we have a 14, 15% unemployment rate and we are collecting far more than we should be not be collecting if people are really unemployed, something doesn't add up, right? And you have some explanations for this. Can you talk about why you think an affordable housing appears to be somewhat insulated from what's going on right now. Yeah. Well, to date, it has been. So that's a fact. So let's Moving forward, who knows what's going to happen, but... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and actually leading up to that, it, you know, it wasn't when we started looking into this. So one of the things that triggered this was uh, one of the Fed chairman was talking about uh, prognosticating a 30% unemployment rate, which by the way, is, is five nominal percentage points higher than the, that of the, the peak in the Great Depression, which was 24.9%. So that's an aggressive number. And then I started to realize, I said, you know what? I am so ignorant right now to what these numbers mean. And I had a moment where I kind of humbled myself because I realized we were internally, we were saying things. I'm like, we don't know what that really means. So the first part was we wanted to get familiar with what are the definitions? What does that really mean? So case in point, the red flag for us was, yeah, I, I was talking with my partner and I said, wait a second, if there's a 30% unemployment rate, doesn't that mean that 70% of people are gainfully employed? If 70% of people have the ability to pay, maybe that's the floor in collection rates. 
And I was like, that something doesn't seem right about that. It seems too rosy, right? And it turns out it's complete falsehood. But now it starts to be like, well, what is that? What's the numerator and the denominator in this unemployment number? And here's the real purpose of this. When you are a landlord, you own somebody's house, but that's their home. And this is a tough kind of position that everybody's in. And you want to be as compassionate as you can afford. So what we wanted to do first off was figure out what can we afford? And for us, it was what do collection rates have to fall to where our properties would be break even? And we did that analysis looking at everything. It was about 56%. So let's say 55 to 60% is the collection rate required to keep the parks alive with, uh, you know, our typical LTVs are 70 to 60%. Okay. So that, that would service the debt and all the expenses. So we said, okay, how would unemployment rate factor in to those collection rates? That was kind of the, the journey. So this will apply for luxury to affordable because the math is the math. But what we did is we looked at the U.S. as an aggregate. So you may have to skew one way or the other for a white collar worker. And, and I'll show you how. So the first thing that we did was is right now uh, unemployments are for, uh, it peaked at 14.7%. I think in May it actually pulled back a little bit to 13.7%. I think that's essentially the same. We, we really shouldn't split hairs over that yet. And it's, it's kind of early. But the first thing we wanted to do is we said, okay, it's the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics that defines what unemployment is. And the pool that they use is all working age Americans, which are civilians that are non-institutionalized, so healthy, not in a mental institution, and are not in active duty military and are 16 years or older. Okay. And the first thing you need to realize is that not everybody in that pool is employed. Typically, only 60% of people are employed. 5% are unemployed at all points in time when it's, that's a full employment. And 35% of, of that population does not participate in the labor force for various reasons, whether they stay at home or they are in school or they uh, are retired or they're on disability and all those things. So the real question is not what's the employment rate, it's who's collecting income. Like as a landlord, you don't really care what the employment rate is. You care about it because it's correlated to the thing you really care about is who's collecting income. And when we did that math, we found out that at full employment, about 80% of that group collects income. When you project that out to a 30% unemployment, that drops to about 60% of people are collecting income. Okay, so for our parks, we said, you know what, that's probably a theoretical low in the ability to pay. That's a fundamental floor is about 60%, which is right around that break-even point. And then on top of that, there's all these other safety nets, we would call them, and affordable housing enjoys more of them from, you know, the, the unemployment benefits, uh, the stimulus checks that we had. There's other government benefits and programs that people, as they lose their job, they fall into which creates an additional margin of safety or a moat. Before you go on to that, so what I'm hearing you say is that full unemployment, 80% are collecting incomes at full employment, which means that never ever is 100% of the population collecting income because some, like you said, don't participate. So what you're saying is in the best possible economy, 80% are collecting income. In the worst possible economy, as you define, where unemployment rate is 30%, which we haven't seen since 19, whatever, 29 or whatever it was, you know, that drops from 80 to 60%, okay? So which means that theoretically- project, if, Because that hadn't happened. Yeah. So we, right, we, but I'm saying is if I do simple math, so if you're say, if you're making a worst case analysis of 30% unemployment, now we're around 15, half of that, which means theoretically we drop from 80% collections down to 70. 
Shanghai halfway in there, right? So seven percent of population is still collecting income. Is we would take a percentage. So I would say you know if eighty percent is a hundred, then much lower as a percentage is sixty, right? Yeah, right. And I know you're doing the math in there, right? But what what I'm saying is we're we're like ten percent lower than we are. We're not thirty percent lower. We're like literally ten percent worst case. So therefore, if it were one for one, if every if a person not collecting rent income would not be able to pay rent, our collections would go from say 100% every single month down to say 90 or from 95% every month to 85% in this current environment. And yeah, you which we're not a which we're not seeing either, but that's worst case. Now what you started to say, okay, to be that as it may, that people are still actually collecting some kind of income though some should not be able to pay their rent, but yet they are. And you're starting to say there's another layer of protection in this case, which is the, some of the government subsidies we've been seeing. Yeah, definitely. So let's first answer the question that some people may have is like, how can you get income if you're not employed? And we're not talking about trust fund babies. Most of those, when you do the numbers, it's social security income, which I would say is very secure unless we have a massive regime change, which we're not, not forecasting anytime soon disability benefits. And then there's, we think it's about 40% of that working population has what we would call durable incomes. When you factor in military, social security beneficiaries, disability beneficiaries, and the public sector, who is not, they're not guaranteed to have a job, but they're, they're certainly going to be more insulated and more durable than the private sector. The counterpoint, which is a little scary, a 30% unemployment if we assume that most of that public sector would hold up, to get to 30% unemployment, you have to have almost one in every two people who works in the private sector lose their job. That's what the math suggests. So that that really is, it's not like you take three people out of 10 in a room. It'd be you take half of the people in the room you know, that work in the private sector. Because so many people have durable incomes as you, as you described. Right. So now okay. let's kind of move on to you have, that's the case. Then we have the stimulus check, right? So the stimulus check was the, the first layer on that we all found out about, I believe it was $1,200 per person in, uh, it wasn't quite every, I think it was above a certain age. It wasn't down to 16, but it was, um, I think it was the tax filer. And income levels also. Yeah, there was cutoffs. So, you know, in the affordable housing space, that $1,200, you know, represented about 4.4 to 5.4 months of pad rent because that's what we charge. Typically our tenants own their own home and they they put it on our land and we charge them uh, rent for that pad. Okay. So that gives them some skin in the game. So they're more likely to pay. If they have the ability to pay, they typically will because that's typically their biggest asset is that home. So the, the juxtaposition to that is in the affordable space, that was a, a stimulus for four or five months. In the luxury space, like for example, in Manhattan, where, where, where we used to live, that might be four or five days of stimulus and you probably don't qualify for it, right? So you have to kind of look at it as on edge stratification to see if, if it works, but you know, anything that's in multifamily that's affordable below a certain level or that really is below that income level, there's gonna be some benefit or, or help to, uh, to the residential investor. So then you have the unemployment benefits. Right. So the unemployment benefits we looked at uh, in our article, we looked at all 18 states where we had properties. We calculated the median. Uh, so typically it's about six months uh, across the country. And um, that median uh, amount worked out to be a pretty sizable cushion, you know, and that's if everybody lived alone. And then all of a sudden we realized, wait, not everybody lives alone. And so you have the layer of not everybody's going to be unemployed. 
So some households will maintain some level of employment. You have a stimulus, which is going to give you several months of cushion. Then you have unemployment benefits that, you know, as long as you make under roughly $50,000 a year, you're getting the maximum potential benefit. You know, it scales. So it's almost half of your, uh, of your, of your paycheck. And you add those all together. In many cases, an affordable tenant is actually no worse than they were before on a cash flow basis. I'm not talking about emotionally or what their plan is, but I'm talking about on a cash flow basis for that time period. They're typically very similar, right? And, and you're more likely to pay for where you live than um, a, you know, a discretionary expense, which is another reason why we like residential. Then you have that additional stimulus of $600 a month. And that created a situation where many people actually were making more money on unemployment than they were off of unemployment. One of my neighbors is actually a, he's a recruiter. And these are, you know, he, he recruits for white collar positions all over the country. So these, these are not low paying positions. And he said that one of the obstacles is that people literally are telling him that um, it's better than what I'm doing right now, but it's not good enough. You know, I'm, I'm not going to make enough more to go take that, that position, which is really, to me, evidence that there is a lot of cash flow happening for people, especially below that $50,000 level. So I think that's a simple spot is that if you live in a, in a metro 50K, there's a massive benefit and it starts to trail off pretty quickly after that. So what you're saying is the, the government subsidies had a disproportionate positive impact on lower income affordable housing, which is typically the asset classes you're investing in and what we're investing in. Absolutely. So, and then, and then you, th- you factor in the one other part of this, which is the supply demand function. If you have that kind of being the case for right now, and then if the financial situation deteriorates further and these subsidies run out, and we're going to talk about that, there's specific dates that are coming in the future when you can, it's baked into the cake, unless we change the recipe, you know, in the next few weeks, there, there, there will be a tenant that will be able to trade down that has more financial stability into the more affordable housing. So we think it creates actually more demand in the long run. If things get bad, if things stay the same, the demand is already very strong. So it really does, I think, highlight so many of the benefits of being an affordable versus being in a class A uh, luxury, which I'm not saying is wrong or it's not a good investment, but I like to skew towards the affordable side because, well, part of it is I have done the numbers on it and I really understand it. So we, we look kind of back and, and what has happened and explaining some of the things that we're seeing, which has pleasantly surprised us on the one hand. But what is your, if you get out your crystal ball here, what is, what is kind of your outlook for the residential affordable housing moving forward? Yeah. So immediate term, here are the, here's some of the negatives. Um, one of the things that we've seen across all our operators, you know, as we, part, we partner with niche operators that um, they're really good at what they do. They just focus on um, let's say mobile home parks, if they're, if, we're, if it's a mobile home park portfolio that we're buying into. And um, what we're seeing, a common tactic is basically giving reductions for prepayment. So I think that's going to take a little top line off. There is a little bit lower collections, but it's really not that much lower. It's, it's almost, you know, within the variability. And we've also started doing a lot more credit card processing because of the remote factor. So that, that's going to, there's, there's a few little things that I think are going to pull back NOI just a little bit. And I think the really biggest one, and this is the one that I, we're not talking about right now as investors, but it's, it's a big deal is that in the short run, we're probably not going to raise rents. Right. And that's kind of the, 
if anybody who's doing this and has really thought it through, that's how you make money in the long run in this game. It doesn't seem like the right thing to do, and it's probably not the right thing to do. But what will happen is, and we'll see this, I'm sure, is that because inflation is such a powerful, consistent trend, when you break out the incomes of your tenants, wherever they are, you'll see that they'll start to go up and there'll probably be a mean reversion to be able to raise rents faster than inflation for some period of time. But you're, you're so right. You know, when we project rents going up 2 or 3%, what we're saying is we're just keeping track with inflation. It's really what we're saying. You're right. So when things become back to new normal, inflation is still there. You said it's such a constant. It's still going to be there, right? Now, we, we may have pulled back from that rule for momentarily, but it's still going to be there, meaning that rents will still go up some amount of money every single year. And the other thing also is, well, that's while true what you're saying, but that assumes that you're buying into a stable property and you want to naturally go make the rents. But in many cases, we, we do uh, value add opportunity, right? Yeah. Where the rents are grossly under, under market because the place doesn't look good. It's not a great place to live or whatever else. So, but having said that, you know, we sometimes project rents two and a half, three, whatever percent after stabilization. And that's a tough pill to swallow right now, because even though that won't happen for another, you know, say 18, 24 months until the property stabilized, we have really no insight into that. But back to your point, inflation is still going to be there two years from now. It's here right now. And it just, you can't perceive it. It's only... You know, uh, what is uh, Steve Jobs said in that speech? It's only after looking, you know, in hindsight, can you connect with all the dots, right? Like, <laughs> so th- those dots are, are pinging every single day. And I think that's probably gonna be the best opportunity. Now, even if you don't get an amazing discount towards, you know, you might think 15% unemployment, uh, which by the way, I'd rather be buying properties at 15% unemployment than 5%. I had a conversation with one of our operators on this once and he said, he's like, oh, the unemployment's great. It's 3% in this area. I said, you know what? That actually, that seems like that floor. <laughs> so I would say that I think is a margin of safety to help because you already have a pretty crappy number to factor in as your starting point. I would take that. And then if even if you don't get a massive discount to what you think it should be, you know, if you're buying sometime next year, the next few years, you're probably gonna be able to raise rents at an accelerated rate because it probably is not going to get raised in the past, the next 12 to 18 months or mm-hmm. not, not that much. And um, yeah, so I think that's, that's a really big opportunity. The biggest thing that we kind of see is monetary inflation is not the same thing as price inflation, right? So what we see in prices is driven by supply and demand plus what the monetary system does right? And I think people confuse those things a lot. I'm not an economist, but I've gone deep enough to understand that those are very different things. And if you own an asset class where the supply and demand is essentially at equilibrium, where it's kind of neutralized out, then this aggressive stimulus, this expansion of, uh, of balance sheets at, uh, you know, at, the federal, at the Fed and the acceleration of printing, which actually is happening. It's not just these other systems that, that the Federal Reserve is doing that should be a dilution effect of the dollar. And essentially the same way if you diluted a, a company by issuing more stock, but not creating more company, that's what happens when they print. They're diluting the buying power of the American people. And if you own an asset that is not being driven by supplier demand, that will essentially trickle down into that. An example where it won't, oil. When you have a demand, crash like oil, that, that is such a large factor that you can't see the monetary inflation. So I think residential real estate is actually gonna be much more consistent as a whole. I also think we probably are building less, like in after 2008, that, that the bubble, 
we built a lot less, almost in all sectors. And that created like an, uh, basically a, there was an undersupply there that helped raise prices. And there's so much data into it. I don't want to, to drown anybody with, you know, it's like drinking out of a fire hose if I, if I keep going. But <laughs> I, I just love it. I mean, I, there's a lot of numbers you talked about, and I can clearly tell that you, that you love that and you spend a lot of time on it. But this, these are important things. These, you know, the looking at the trends and explaining things. Sometimes we just take certain things for granted and we say things, but we don't really know what they are. So I really appreciate you explaining a lot of these things, how they interrelate with each other. And it makes us feel good about the asset class we're in. I think you made much more of a science project than many of us have. And so this has been great to kind of affirm that, hey, we're in the right place. Yep. And not only now, but also moving forward. There's one other thing I want to actually put out there too, because it's both a counterpoint and also another bullish sign, I think, for residential. The counterpoint to inflation would be, well, why are interest rates so low? And why do they keep going lower? Because when interest rates are falling, that's a sign that there's lower and lower expectations on inflation. And I think when you look at the supply demand side of you know, people's behaviors, that's basically a much bigger factor than the monetary factor to date so far. And what I think that does is sets us up for low interest rates that will stay low and actually maybe even go much lower. And as you know, cap rates are, are really tied to that interest rate number because a lot of other people are also trying to do the same thing that we are and they realize pretty quickly the the multiple and the levers that they can create you know when they do this so i think cap rates actually contract um, over the next 10 years which means the value of properties will expand when that happens you get paid a lot for swinging the hammer that's what we like <laughs> to say so when you work on value-added projects where where cap rates are contracting you're getting a lot. You're you're getting paid a lot for creating revenue. So you have, you know, we really like value add. Over the next uh, few years, we think we can. Well, there'll be a new opportunity to raise rents ahead of inflation. And if we focus on asset classes where supply and demand are at equilibrium, we believe that that monetary inflation will actually show up. And we're going to watch the incomes of our tenants like a hawk. Like it's something we watch every quarter. So, I think big picture wise, that that's what we're looking for. But we like to always own properties that are easy to hold and have positive carries so we can wait to, to let that play out. So you're going to tell about this upcoming magical date <laughs> where we all turn into pumpkins or something. What is that date all about? So one of the things that's crazy interesting, especially in the affordable side, is that there is actually a cyclicality to when people tend to be delinquent and tend to be you know, paid up. One of the most powerful charts you can see this in is in subprime auto loan delinquencies where people have not paid their bills for 60 or 90 days. And there's a couple of places you can check that. And what you find is that people are most caught up right after they get their tax return and most behind the ball right after the holiday period, okay? So because this year we shifted over when, when taxes are, are due and people always do things last minute, we have to basically essentially say that, you know what, sometime around October is probably gonna be a little bit better. It's gonna be, and come holiday is probably gonna be the worst that it's gonna be this year. So those are October and December are really interesting because of that. And then another important date is September because that's when the beginning of the people who first serves onto unemployment are going to start to hit their caps. And unless the rules change or we add something else, that's going to be really, really telling because now that safety net is essentially uh, it's, it's pulling back and going away on top of the fact Unemployment stimulus is not taxable, but unemployment benefits are. And almost nobody knows how to save their money, like withholding the way a business does. 
And I expect it'll actually be almost be the opposite effect. Instead of getting refunds, people will be like, wait, that wasn't all my money. So I think we have to watch out for that, especially on the affordable side. Damien, it's been awesome. Yep. How can people find you, connect with you? Um, you can check us out on our website, uh, damariscapital.com. Um, we have a couple of white papers on mobile home park investing, the, the unique tax advantages to them, uh, some long-term uh, stats. And uh, you could, I believe there's a pop-up on the site where you can put your email in and get access to that. And then uh, we could book a meeting if it's appropriate. That is awesome. Man, I appreciate you taking a deep dive on all the factors and reasons we love uh, the affordable residential housing. So thanks for being on the show, Damien. Michael Blank, loved it. Thank you. <laughs> well, and there you have it. The unequivocal proof that being in affordable residential housing is the best place to be, always has, and most likely always will. And Damien did a, such a fantastic job of really bringing it all together for us in numbers. Now, if you were a little overwhelmed, uh, that's okay. Maybe listen to this episode again, but we also asked him to write a blog post for us to put all this stuff in writing. That helps a lot. And you can get that at the show notes at themichaelblank.com forward slash session 220. Session 220, the show notes with a link to the blog post that we asked uh, Damien to write. It's really good stuff. If you're a passive investor, uh, then clearly this is fantastic information for you to feel really good about investing in multi-fintech syndications. If you're an active investor, this is great information for your passive investors as well. Educate yourself about why the asset class is so outstanding, why it's working now in difficult times, why it worked in the great last recession, why it works in great markets. And that's a really good thing to know. If you're interested in investing with us, then why don't you join our investment club? Uh, you can find that at nighthawkequity.com. Nighthawk Equity is our investment firm, nighthawkequity.com. And then click on the join button. You'll fill out a short form and schedule a call with us. And that'll be a great way to get the ball rolling. And we can share with you some upcoming opportunities that we may have on the table. So it's a good thing that we don't have to worry about our multifamily investments. There's so many other things that we have to worry about in the world uh, that we see on social media in the world right now. And it's just one thing after, after another. And it can be kind of really frustrating and depressing, actually. And one of the things I have been pulling back from news and social media a little bit because it's so unbelievably overwhelming. But it really uh, is one thing that we don't have to worry about right now is our multifamily. And you know, I just urge you guys to stay, you know, stay calm and stay on your path to financial freedom, wherever that may lead you, and just stay focused. There's a lot of waves and noise out there. And yes, we have to pay attention. We have to be sensitive. We have to participate. We can't be part of a silent majority. But we also have a life to live as well. And I think sometimes we have been overreacting to, to things. And just stay your path towards financial freedom. Use multifamily as a vehicle to do that. If you're already financially free, you're closer free, then it opens you up to living a life of significance. And this is what we need right now, guys. We need more people with options who have their expenses covered and who can think strategically and think bigger and can work on solving some of the problems. My theory is that the more people are financially free right now, the better the world will be. So we need more people financially free. So uh, that is my message, really. That's really why I do, do the things. I, I observe that people who are financially free, that's actually what they do, is they figure out how they can serve others. And that's really the calling for all of us. So thank you for listening. Remain safe and sane. God bless. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.